Dennis works for Sean. That's why we can blame him for all the problems. We're having some wireless trouble, Dennis. <laughs> so, but we're going to be in uh, First Kings chapter two today, and uh, and we're continuing this series on life after David. We're continuing to look at. At the, at the mess that was left over and how people adjusted to life after David. And uh, it's interesting as we as we get to this point that now we start to deal, last week we talked about the legacy that David left, and, and, and this week we're going to talk about uh, the mess that David left. Because we, we started last week in, in kind of a, a nice spot where we're David left this beautiful message for his son Solomon. He said, I am about to go the way of all the earth, he said. So be strong, act like a man, and observe what the Lord your God requires. Walk in obedience to him, keep his decrees and his commands, his laws and regulations, and it's written in the law of Moses. Do this so that you may prosper in all you do and wherever you go, that the Lord may keep his promise to me. If your descendants Watch how they live. If they walk faithfully before me with all their heart and soul, you will never have fail that successor of the throne of Israel. That's a beautiful legacy to leave those who come after you. That's a beautiful moment and message. And I mean, even, even my own mother came up to me after that and was like, oh, I would like, give me the, make sure you give me the reference for that because I would like that read uh, at my funeral. It is a, a beautiful statement. And it's an, an, expe- an expected statement. This is the kind of stuff that we're used to hearing on Sunday mornings. We're used to being able to open up the Bible and find these kinds of statements. And if you do the right things, good things will happen, and that's real. And the peace and the comfort that come from statements like this in the Bible, I don't want to take that away from anyone. I don't want, this is a real promise from the Lord. The peace and the comfort the call that, that comes from following the Lord is real. And I, and I don't want to in any way diminish that. But as much as this is real, it's also simple. And it's perhaps too simple. So what do we know about Solomon? This is a non-rhetorical question, and this is where we're going to start. So what do we know about Solomon? So anybody throw something out to me that you know about Solomon? Wives. 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 Wisdom. Anything else? Any other governing words? Wives. Wives. <laughs> Wars. If they, don't have, they don't have to be W words. Like, you know, yeah, yeah, he didn't actually cut the baby in half. That would be a very different. Too much of everything, yeah. So, but it's interesting where we first went. That 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 what we know about Solomon is straight off the top of wisdom and wives, right? And and you remember the story about how Solomon got his wisdom, right? That the Lord visited him and said, I'll give you anything that you want, and then Solomon asked for wisdom. Uh, that, that, that's what we know. And so, and, and all of those things are true. Solomon had uh, a lot of wisdom, he had a lot of wives, he had a lot of wealth, he had relative peace in his kingdom compared to David. But it's interesting that immediately after David makes that statement about follow me and you will never forget, follow the ways of the Lord, he says this. He says, very next line, now you yourself know what Joab son of Zeruiah did to me, what he did to the two commanders of Israel's armies, Abner son of Merah and Massa son of Jether. He killed them, shedding their blood in peacetime as in the battle. And with that blood he stained the bell by his waist and the sandals on his feet. 
Deal with him according to your wisdom, but do not let his gray, gray head go down to the grave in peace. It's interesting. So immediately after saying, follow the Lord, he also says, also, by the way, fulfill the vengeance that I have on my enemies. Joab was the commander of David's army. And in the inter, in the mix-up, in the mixed-up chaotic time between the death of Saul and the, the official takeover of, of, uh, of David as, as king of Israel, Joab's brother was murdered, was killed in battle by Abner and Massa. So Joab never let that go. Even after the king was united, David declared peace and incorporated Abner and Amasa into his, into his own army. But we're told in the Bibles that Joab lured Abner into a, into a cave to have a meeting with him and there stabbed him to death. David never let that go, and he's not, and he wants to make sure that, that uh, Solomon is going to take care of that after his death. David doesn't stop there, he continues. He says, but come show kindness to the sons of Barzillai of Gilead, and let that be among those who eat at your table. They stood by me when I fled from your brother Absalom. That's very nice. But then, and remember, you have with you Shimei, son of Gareth, the Benjamite from Babylon, who called down bitter curses on me the day I went to Mahanaim. When I came down to meet him to Jordan, I swore to him by the Lord, I will not put you to death by the sword. But now, do not consider him innocent. You are a man of wisdom, and you will know what to do with him. Bring his gray head down to the grave in blood. And then David rested with his ancestors and was buried in the king, buried in the city of David. So David doesn't just end his life with a legacy of, like, follow the Lord, things will go well for you. He also ends with a list of vengeances to be visited on Joab and on Shimei. And Shimei, because uh, when when David was in the midst of his uh, in the midst of his reign, he he was out to to meet with his son Absalom, who rebelled against him. And Shimei uh, threw rocks and dirt at him, cursing him in the name of the Lord, saying that he had brought too much blood upon the kingdom. And in the midst of this, his, his own soldier said, "Should we just go murder this guy? Because that's what kings do when someone is insulting them." But David said to Abishai and all his officials, "My son, my own flesh and blood is trying to kill me. How much more than this Benjamite? Leave him alone. Let him curse, for the Lord has told him to. And it may be that the Lord will look down on my misery and restore His covenant blessing instead of this curse today." And David goes from that moment to now in his deathbed saying, make sure his gray head goes down to the grave in blood. And the reality is the story gets messy. And it turns from something that we expect the Bible to be to something that we don't expect the Bible to be. And it no longer sounds like the Bible, and it no longer sounds like the, the children's stories that we're familiar with, and the comforting ideas of right and wrong. But all of a sudden, this starts to sound like the plot to an HBO miniseries. Where it starts with a list of people to murder and vengeance to serve. And what do we do with this? Other than being very interesting and very intriguing and the kind of story that we like to entertain ourselves with, what do we do with this mess that we're left with? Because this is part of our book. We believe that this is the inspired word of God. We believe that we're supposed to do something with it. What do we do with this mess that we've been handed? Because we don't just have stories about do well and the Lord will do well with you. We also have stories about do not let his gray head go down make his gray head go down to the grave in blood. But before we get there to how we deal with this mess, let's look at how Solomon deals with it. <coughs> so Solomon deals with this this way. When the news reached Joab, who he conspired with Adonijah, not with Absalom, 
He fled the tent of the Lord and took hold of the horns of the altar. King Solomon was told to Joe, Joe, he fled, and fled to the tent of the Lord and was beside the altar. And then Solomon ordered Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, go strike him down. This is one of the most theatrical scenes in the Bible, in my mind. So Joab understands that Solomon becomes king. He understands that if he hears that David has given the order that he's to be put to death, Joab's first move is to run into the Holy of Holies of the tabernacle. Now, if you know this, you know how insane that is. One person, the high priest, was allowed to go into the Holy of Holies once a year. No one else was. And even when the high priest went into the Holy of Holies to go to the altar once a year, they tied a rope around his leg just in case he happened to die in the presence of God. They didn't want to have to go in and get him. They wanted to drag him out. Okay? So Joab, when he finds out that Solomon has taken the throne, that Solomon has been instructed by David to kill him, he runs into the Holy of Holies, grabs hold of the altar, and says, if you're going to kill me, you're going to kill me here. So naturally, when Solomon orders Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, to go get him, he said, Benaiah is like, nah, I don't think so. This is a complex situation. This is a messy situation. But you can see what Joab is doing in this very theatrical piece where he stands there saying, if you're going to kill, God's going to kill me, you're going to kill me, doesn't matter, but this is where I'm dying. So Benaiah reported to the king, this is how Joab answered me, the king commanded Benaiah, do as he says, strike him down and bury him, and so clear me and my whole family of the guilt of the innocent blood that Joab shed. And the Bible says, So Benias and Jehoiada went up and struck down Joab and killed him, and he was buried at his home in the country. And the king put Benias and Jehoiada over the army in Joab's position. So that's task one finished. That's how Solomon deals with the mess. He has his own right-hand man take out his father's right-hand man in the Holy of Holies, buries him in his city, and then gives his own right-hand man the position of the man that he just murdered. Task one, down. Then the king sent for Shimei, the second day that needs to be taken care of. The king sent for Shimei and said to him, Build yourself a house in Jerusalem and live there, but do not go anywhere else. The day you leave and cross the Kidron Valley, you can be sure you will die. Your blood will be on your own head. And Shimei answered the king and said, What you say is good. Your servant will do as my lord the king has said. And Shimei stayed in Jerusalem. For a long time. Now, this is a very interesting maneuver because Shimei didn't commit any violence. All Shimei did was, was insult the king. He insulted David. So that's a bizarre thing to want to murder somebody over. So Solomon does come up with this very ingenious solution. He doesn't exile him, he, he creates his own sanctuary city and says, as long as you stay within the boundaries of this city, you're going to be fine. But, as we see, it's a, and he guarantees Shemaine's safety as long as he stays there. But things get complicated. Three years later, two of Shemaine's slaves ran out to Akish, son of Makkah, king of Gath. And Shemaine was told, your slaves are in Gath. And this, he saddled his donkey and went to Akish at Gath in search of his slaves. So Shemaine went away and brought the slaves back to Gath. When Solomon was told that Shemaine had gone from Jerusalem to Gath and had a turn, the king summoned Shimei and said to him, Did I not make you swear by the Lord and warn you? On the day you leave to go anywhere else, you'll be sure that you will die. And at that time you said to me, What you say is good, I will obey. Why then did you not keep your oath to the Lord and obey the command that I gave you? 
And the king also said to Shimei, You know in your heart all the wrong you did to my father, David. But now the Lord will repay you for your wrongdoing. But King Solomon will be blessed, and David's throne will remain secure before the Lord forever. And then the king gave order to Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, and he went out and struck Shimei down, and he died. And the kingdom was now established in Solomon's hand. So this is Solomon's solution, that kind of Shimei killed himself with his own greed. He didn't abide by the rules of the agreement. But it ends in the exact same way. He gives orders to his right-hand man to strike someone dead, and he does it. And it's at this moment, after fulfilling the vengeance of his father, that the kingdom is now established in Solomon's hands, which leaves us to this mess. How do we reconcile this with the person that we know Solomon to be? How do we reconcile this with the wisdom that we know God gave him? And does this help us to, to, to wrestle with the mess that this story is for our own lives and for Solomon's life as well. Because the very next chapter after this is where Solomon is given his wisdom. So when Solomon begins to solidify his kingdom, he goes and has sacrifices. So he gets he solidifies the kingdom. The very next thing in first Kings chapter three, the king went to Gideon to offer sacrifices. That was the most important high place. Solomon offered a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. And at Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon during the night in a dream, and God said, Ask for whatever you want me to give you. So it's, let's remember that this ask came after Solomon had just delivered the vengeance of his father. This ask comes after David has had more, sorry, Solomon has had more people killed than he ever imagined. This happened after he had to drag a body out of the Holy of Holies. And, and he's faced with the mess of life, trying to deal with the reality of what being the king of Israel actually means. And he deals with this. And in the midst of this, he says, Solomon answered, You showed great kindness to my father and servant, your father David, because he was faithful to you. And Righteous and upright in heart, who continued his great kindness to him and given him a son to sit on his throne to this very day. But now, Lord my God, you have made your servant king in the place of my father David. But I am only a little child, and I don't know how to carry out my duty. Your servant is here among the people you have chosen, a great people, too numerous to count or number. So give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people and distinguish between right and wrong. For who is able to judge and govern this great people of yours? So Solomon asks for this. Solomon asks for this wisdom, not for wealth, not for the death of his enemies, not for anything else. He asks for this wisdom in the context of blood and revenge and the mess that was left by his father and the mess that he and others continue to make. And in the midst of all of this mess, he asks for wisdom and the Lord meets him. And this wisdom comes for him in the acknowledgement that the world is wrong. And sometimes it feels and looks as if there are no right answers. That this is a mess that nobody can clean up. And in the midst of this, Solomon says, help me, because I don't know how to deal with this reality. But God gave him that wisdom. The Bible says that the Lord was pleased that Solomon had asked for this. So God said to him, since you have asked for this, and have not asked for long life or wealth, nor have you asked for the death of your enemies, but for the discernment and administering justice, I will do what you have asked. I will give you a wise and discerning heart, so that there will never be anyone like you, nor the, there, there will never have been anyone like you, nor will there ever be. 
So that's how Solomon dealt with his mess. In the midst of being a king, given a kingdom that is bloody, that, 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 that looks more like an HBO miniseries than it looks like the children's coloring books that we've been given of the, of the Bible. In the midst of that, he says, God, give me wisdom because I don't know how to navigate this world. And the reason why that's powerful for us is because if we're honest with ourselves, if we're honest with the world around us, the world is much more like the plot of an HBO miniseries than it is the children's coloring books that we've been given. And we don't, and while it's easy for people to come into churches and to play instances like this and just want to be given the children's stories to comfort them and to, and to pretend that the world is simple, what we know is that what we bring along with us is the baggage of a full week of people hurting each other, of people continuing to make bad choices, of our own bad habits, of our own patterns of disbelief, of our own patterns of, uh, of, dis- uh, of self-destruction and destruction of others, in the midst of terrorist attacks in our own city, in the midst of all of that, we show up and we say, I don't know how to do this, God. I don't know how to manage the life that you've given me. There are too many things to take care of, and I'm lost. So in the midst of this, what am I going to do? And the reality is we don't, at that moment, need a simplistic childlike faith. We don't need the kind of faith that only fits in stories of children's books and coloring books. We need the kind of faith that acknowledges the mess that the world is and that sometimes there is no right answer. And in the midst of not having right answers, we need a faith that says this, like James says in James 1, chapter 5, many of you lacks wisdom, just God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. And that wisdom doesn't mean that we're going to feel less confused in facing the world. That wisdom means that we're going to be able to wrestle with it as best we can, and we're going to understand that God knows what a mess this world is as well. Wisdom comes when we acknowledge that our world is a mess. Wisdom comes when we acknowledge that we don't have all of the right answers. Wisdom comes when we acknowledge that that, that, that we are overwhelmed with what God has given us to take care of. And wisdom comes when we're humble enough to admit that, that, that we can't handle this on our own. So we reach out and we ask and God condescends to us and gives us his wisdom. This is incredibly important for us. Because it is very dangerous for us as Christians to be given simplistic answers and to live in simplistic answers. I already planned this whole thing out before what happened last night happened last night. I don't I write my sermon through the week. I don't uh, I don't write it on Sunday morning. I mean I put it together Sunday morning, but I know what I'm going to talk about before I get here. But the last night happened. And last night it was messy. And, 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 and circumstances that we used to think that only happened on the other side of the world now happen in our, in our city. And there's going to be the temptation in the midst of that to confront that fear with simplistic answers. That we're going to hate everyone who doesn't like us. And I've already seen it. That we're going to fear Muslims. That we're going to push Muslims aside. That we should, be, that, that we should have some religious test. But... This is the thing that really frustrates me and that we need to acknowledge, is that when someone says Muslims, they don't mean Muslims, they mean people who have a different color than us. Because the bigots of this world and the people that want to give us simplistic answers, they're not very good at telling the difference between Muslim folk who speak Arabic 
and our Ethiopian brothers and sisters who are going to be here later this afternoon who speak Amharic. And they're going to lump them all into the exact same category. And that is completely contrary to what we have been called to do as followers of Jesus. As followers of Jesus, we do not look on the outward appearance, but we look on the heart as God does. And in the middle of a messy, complex world, we ask for wisdom. And we do not succumb to fear, and we do not succumb to hatred, but we love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and we love our neighbors and ourselves. And in the midst of not understanding how to operate in a world that is confusing and scary and, 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 and dragging us in a hundred different directions, we say, God, give us wisdom because we don't have it. God, give us wisdom because this world is a mess and I don't know how to operate in it. God, give us wisdom because, because you're the only thing that makes sense in the midst of a world that appears to be coming apart at the seams. And until we admit that to ourselves, then we're not going to get the wisdom that God calls us to. Too many people in my position have given you simplistic answers that do not satisfy. Too many people in my position have tried to, 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 have tried to make you dumber than you ought to be in face of the world. Too many people in my position have read the passage, let's be shrewd as snakes and harmless as doves, and have only looked at the harmless of dove, as doves part, and not given you the tools and the reality and the acknowledgement that we need to, to, to live in a world where, where, where crazy people smash U-Hauls into sidewalks. We haven't been given a faith that is ill-equipped to deal with that. In the midst of that, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. We do not, we recognize that we do not live in a world of easy answers. But in the midst of a messy world, we call out to God and we say, God gives wisdom because we don't know how to deal with this. Apart from you, we're lost. Apart from you, we're confused. And apart from you, we're going to succumb to our own fear and hatred and ignorance. But in you, we can do what we've been called to do, which is to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbors as ourselves. Let's pray. God. We thank you that we are not abandoned. We thank you that in the mess of this world, you have not thrown up your hands and said you're on your own. We thank you, we, we, we thank you that, that you do not ignore the mess of this world, that, that, that you are not apart from it, but yet you came as Jesus into the midst of this mess and dealt with all of the, the confusing politics and the state violence and the, and, and, and the, the, the rebellion and, and the economic greed and, 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 and the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life and all of those things that confuse us, you stepped into the middle of us. You stepped into the middle of them for us. So help us not, help us to not be afraid, help us to not need to make this world simpler than it is, but help us to confront the mess that you, uh, that you are in control of. Help us to confront the mess that we do not understand, but help us in the midst of that remember to act for your wisdom as you give it to us. We ask this in the name of your son, Jesus.